Speaking of open minds. I'm just going to give Jack a pop filter. Oh, man, I'm spitting like crazy, aren't I? Jack, you know, if I I know anything about you, Jack, you're way too pop. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, now I'm getting flashbacks of when I I tell you the story about how (laughs) you're going to die if I never told you this. I'm hanging out one of the earliest sessions I'm photographing. Produces Todd Barkin. It's for Tito Puente's rhythm and horn section cool. at Clinton Studios. Cool. And I'm cracking jokes and hanging out. Todd has a great vibe with that, and we're hanging out. And I, I do a Popeye impersonation. Like, what would Popeye sound like if he's doing an orgasm, right? And I'm going, oh, okay, okay. Oh, oh. And Todd goes, save that for later. And I'm thinking, <laughs> what? Later on, it's a break in between tunes. And they put a spit pad in front of a mic in the main recording thing. And he says, are you ready? And I'm like, what? He goes, I want you to do what you did earlier. We're going to track it. <laughs> so the tune the tune is home cooking, a uh, Horace Silva tune done in the Latin style cool. by Tito Puente's cool. guys. The band is the Bronx Horns. And there's some talk going on, some banter in the middle of the tune with some players in the band. Ray Vega, trumpet player, and Mitch Froman is the leader of the band. So... There's a woman going, oh, Mitchie, Mitchie, Mitchie. And there's all this Spanish stuff going on. I don't know what they were saying. And they wanted me in the background to go, oh, I got, I got, I got, oh, Just I got, for like eight seconds. Yeah. It's on the tune. You can go. I didn't get credit because they would have to pay me. But this is on YouTube. You can go check, check it out. I, and you'll hear in the middle of the Bronx horns, Silver in the Bronx is the album, Home Cooking. You can hear me doing Popeye in the middle of the tune. And JP, cue the track. Welcome to the East Main Media Podcast, a series of conversations featuring leaders in a variety of subjects, including business, politics, media, and the arts. For more information, visit eastmainmedia.com forward slash podcast. Today's podcast is brought to you by JLC Accounting, bookkeeping, accounting, tax preparation, and advisory. Visit jlc-accounting.com and by Tap Into TV, original video programming covering topics of interest in New Jersey, New York, and beyond. Visit tapintotv.net. Welcome back to part two of our conversation. Here's your host, Brian Brodeur. Now, you yourself, as many people probably do, don't know who know you are a bass player. Self-taught. I could do little grooves and right. improvise. And I played in a couple little musical situations with yeah. friends, but uh, I don't actively play, but I sure love the instrument. And listen, also shout out Lefty. Yes, Lefty bass player. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if I wasn't a Lefty boy, I would have a hell of a collection of Fender jazz basses, but <laughs> uh, I'm lucky to have the ones I have, and some of them are vintage originals. And Now, you know, as we've discussed, you've worked both your design work and your transport work. You've worked with a number of notable bass artists, Christian McBride, Marcus Miller, who you name-dropped before. Tell me about Marcus Miller, uh, the Grammy Award. Oh, I uh, did some transport work for Marcus, 
And around 2001, his manager, who I already knew from around a scene, B.B. Green, contacted me and said, we'd like to have you work on a CD for Marcus. And that became the M Squared CD, which won Best Contemporary Album, Jazz Album of the Year in 2001. And I uh, was fortunate to receive a Grammy certificate, which was great. Uh, like, wow. <laughs> and that was the first solo I jazz? I think it was the first basis solo album that won a Grammy of Best Album of the Year. And clarify, that's jazz album? Best contemporary jazz contemporary album. Contemporary jazz album. Yeah, right. of the year. Wow. And that was M Squared, which I designed the CD package for, and the cover came together about 2.30 in the morning. I was blending two photographs mm. in Photoshop, and all of a sudden I was like, ooh, this looks like it's something. It seems like they all come together 2.30 in the morning for me. And uh, we showed it to Marcus. Uh, when I worked, I did five CDs for Marcus, and I worked very closely with him and BB, his manager. And I would show her the idea and she'd give me some feedback or we would do like a think tank session, throw some things around. And I showed her this design and then uh, we sent it to Marcus and boom, he liked it. There's some great tracks on that album too. It's a cool sounding album. He's yeah, a great and, player. And, and nobody knew what M Squared was except that it was more Marcus than ever, you know, square, <laughs> squared in, in terms of exponential, you know, in mathematics. And that's how the logo looks. It's an M with the, with the two. With the two yeah. And it was great because when I blended these photos, that image that I created over time, and not a long time, became M squared, which is kind of magic. I often tell clients, Covered designs don't have to be literal to the title of the CD. They could take on their own persona and become what you want it to become. And that happened with M squared. And certainly that's a facet of jazz. Yeah, yeah, a little improvisation or magic. Now, I would also recommend any listeners to this interview to check out your social media on Facebook. You often post pictures of designs, but also inspirations of those designs. Like recently, mm. if I recall correctly, the sunglasses that helped inspire the Blues Brothers cover. Right? Yeah, it was a kind of like a little, I, I love factoids and history and little facts and stuff like that. And I'm kind of downplaying that because my friends know how much I, I love history and factoids. But I thought some friends of mine and, and, and people in the industry and even guys in the band would get a kick out of, here was the glasses I used, the sunglasses yeah. to make the cover which sits on a shelf in my bedroom. Right. You know, and the, you it's know. a great behind the scenes. I love seeing that stuff on your Yeah, you know, I, I, I should do a little more of that. So speaking of bass players, this is where I was going. I, I wanted to highlight that. I wanted to have you talk to me a little bit about the great, late, great Jocko Pastorius. You and I have talked a little bit about your experiences spending time with Jocko, and I'd like to have you speak about that. Tell me about coming to hear his music, but then... Tell me about spending time with him down in the village. Yeah. Uh, my dear friend, Comrade Sponroff, was already familiar with Jocko. And when Comrade and I became friends, I was just getting into bass playing and music. And he gave me a few albums to listen to. And some of those out, al- one of those three albums was Heavy Weather. Weather Report. Weather Report, Heavy Weather. Right, which contained, many people will know the song Birdland from Birdland, that Birdland, yeah. uh, which Jocko uh, not only plays some great fretless on, it's it's up in the mix, but uh, Jocko actually sings on that too. A lot of people don't realize. Ah, yeah. And uh, also, Conrad gave me Bright Size Life and uh, the first Matheny Group album mm. and a George Benson album, because three albums. And the Heavy Weather one, I didn't fall in love instantly with, but I soon did afterwards. So... A couple months later, 
Comrade says, hey, man, uh, we're going to go see this guy, Jocko. It's like $5. Let's go. So uh, we took the ferry across Manhattan. We got up to uh, the Jazz Coalition Center, which was behind Tower Records down on the 8th Street location yeah. of Tower Records. Yeah. And uh, it was just a space that they used for different events. And the vibe was kind of like, is this guy Jocko going to show up or whatever? And I didn't know anything about him at that point. It was $5 who went in. Roughly what year is this? Oh, we're talking yeah. 1985. Sure. And uh, I remember we walk in, it was a guy with a video camera in the back. I'll get back to that later. And uh, a magazine, Guitar for the Practicing Musician, Jocko was in an issue. Alex Lifeson's on the cover. From Rush? Yeah. They had a little spot on Jocko, a little article, and they had tablature for the live version of his continuum, uh -huh. which I still have to copy of that magazine. And we went to sit down. And, and I'm sorry to interrupt. Right around that time is his first solo album. Is that about right? Well, this is 85. So his first solo album came out in 76. Oh, and really? And then the Back second then. one came out in 1981. Yeah, so this is further down the line of Yeah, Jocko he's Lore. in New York at this point, and he's a fixture in New York. Yes, so I'm he, sorry, to, I, I interrupt. The video camera in the back of the room, yeah. continuum in the tablature. Go ahead. Yeah, so we sit down in the third row. And it's a demo, $5 to get in, demo for the Guild Pilot Bass, which was a lightweight bass that came out, combined with the release of the Harky Metal Cone speakers. So they had Bill Dickens come out and play and do some slap stuff real quick, speak about the bass and the cabinet. Then Jerry Peak of the Steve Morris band came out on a yellow Guild Pilot Bass with a tremolo bar, I'll never forget this, and he, with two-handed style on the neck, he played here, there, and everywhere which I could still hear it. It was incredible. Then Daryl Jones came out, did something, talked about it. And all the guys were kind of like, yeah, thank you, appreciate it. But, you know, this guy Jocko coming out is going to really blow you away. So the vibe was like, okay, Jocko. And I didn't know anything about him. Last guy to come out is Jocko. He runs up the aisle. I'll never forget he was wearing a purple beret, purple eyes-eyed shirt, and, and <laughs> kind of tatted dungarees, tall and lanky. He comes up the aisle, jumps up on the stage, picks up a blue gill pilot bass unlined fretless and starts playing kind of his solo thing that he did. It was like some Charlie Parker sax lines and different motifs. And then he got the delay going uh -huh. and he had to and he locked that in and played over that. And he played for a few minutes and I'm sitting there. Whoa, falling in love with the fretless. And by the time that night ended, I knew that personally, I wanted to get into that. Hmm. So, he finished up playing. The, the uh, President Gill came out and turned down the amp. You could still hear going boom, boom as he talked. <laughs> was still going, and when yeah. he got done, Jocko came out. He, it's almost like his hand reached from the far side of stage, and he turned that up and started playing again. It was hysterical. And they played for a while. They came out and jammed, and then members of Jocko's Word of Mouth band came out and played. And Jocko's uh, infamous Fender Jazz bass was there that night. Right, the bass of, of Doom, right, they yeah, called it? Yeah, yeah. And I don't know if he, he might have called it that once or twice, but it's gotten that name over the yeah, years. Whatever. But there it was. It was covered with some purple spray paint on the front. It was one of the last times I think it was in public. Sure. But he didn't play it that night. He was supposed to play uh, the Gill bass, obviously. Now, of course, as a side story, that bass sort of famously disappeared and was recently found again, Yeah, you know, there's that and, whole side story. Yeah, and I always knew it was in New York. I just had this feeling, and I actually, there was talk of having me transport it to different events. It was, it was interesting. Yeah. But uh, a week later after this event at the Jazz Coalition down there, I'm inspired, and I'm buying up 
I used to go into the city every week and with friends and we'd just buy records. And I'm literally buying up any and all Jocko albums I could find. And still, I didn't know a lot about him at this point. Mm. And I pick up my last album of the day, what became my last album of the day, in Golden Discs Records on Bleecker. It's not even there anymore. Yeah. I turn a corner with my friend Steve, who was into like The Who and U2 and rock. And there's Jocko in the doorway of the Waverly Deli, probably where the film center there is, those, those little theaters now. Sure, yeah. And I say, Jocko? And he goes, hey, man, what you doing? I said, I've been buying up all your albums all day, and I've got a, a yellow J&R music bag. <laughs> that would be like the first place he went to. And a bundle of albums. I just picked up Weather Report's live album, 830, and one of the two albums called Twins, that was Jocko's big band live in Japan, oh, the wow. vinyl, and amongst some other albums. And my friend goes, who's this? I said, that's him. We've been buying his albums. So Jocko says, hey, man, let's go show off. And he takes the albums out of my hand and darts across 6th Avenue, traffic going back and forth. Sure. And he said, come on, let's go show off. And my friend looks at me and I said, come on, we better go. We're crossing the middle of 6th Avenue. Jocko's already in the basketball courts and I could see cellophane flying in the air from the records. <laughs> we get over there. He's sitting down. He had a pen. I don't know where he got the pen. And this guy's playing basketball around. Maybe some of them knew who he was. I know some of them didn't. And he looks up at my friend Steve. He goes, what's your name? My friend goes, Steve. And he goes, yo, Steve. And he starts writing on the, the Live in Japan album, Twins 1, I think it was called. And then writing some Japanese stuff. He goes, hey, you know what this means? You know, Domo Arigato. And Jocko's writing in Japanese. I still have the record today. And then he looks at me. And he goes, what's your name? I go, Jack. He takes out the sleeve from his second soul album, Word of Mouth, where the sleeve, the picture sleeve in the vinyl is Jocko at the piano composing. He's got a pencil, I think, in his ear. He's got yeah. this multicolored sweater on, I think. And he writes, yo, Jack, Jocko. Wow. And then he did something which to this day still blows me away. He looked up at me and my friend and he said, you guys know how to get home from here? I'm like, yeah, we do this every week and we go wreck. I thought that that always rang out and still does with me. You know, here's this guy, world-renowned musician, yeah. going through some trouble in his personal life at that point, which I didn't know about at that point. I learned later. Right. But he thought enough to ask me and my buddy, you know, do we know how to get home? And I just thought that was so sweet. I never forgot it. So I, I saw him a couple more times. So one time I have to sleep in on a sidewalk overnight to get tickets for staying in the Green Middle Blue Turtle store at Radio City. I walked down from 49th Street all the way down to the basketball courts one morning. And this is before cell phones and stuff. My friends were going to meet me there to go record shopping because mm -hmm. I was the only one who yep. knew where all the stores were. I was like MapQuest built in, you know. <laughs> and I spent the day hanging out with Jocko in the basketball courts. We went across the street to the Waverly Deli. He grabbed two Heinekens out of the back, a package of Wise Potato Chips at the counter, put everything down and said, that's your lesson, pay for it. And we went and sat down with our backs against the fence and sat there and he showed me these finger exercises that he used to do. And then he would go off and play basketball. I'd go to a store, come back. Then I saw him a couple other times and then he just wasn't there anymore. And then, yeah, yeah so. And of course, for anyone listening to this interview, Jocko suffered from manic depression, you know, mental illness. Yeah, basically. they didn't know how to diagnose it or treat it back then from what I heard. I mean, I talked about it with Hiram. Hiram used to get asked a lot about because he was in the trio with Jocko. Right. And I asked Hiram two questions over my 11 years of working and being friends with him. I asked him, 
the first thing I've asked him was, did you guys ever rehearse? He goes, nah. And then uh, whenever they did the Lone Star gigs alive. Who was the drummer? Who was the trio? Kenwood Denard. Oh, my God. And then he told me another time, we were actually crossing 7th Avenue, and Hiram said, you know, I'm confident that back at the time I added, probably added another year to his life because Chaka was yeah, getting into trouble on, the, on their Creo tour and stuff, and that's when they got him into the hospital. But I have to say, Chaco Pastorius should be the poster child for his music rather than his health issues. Yes, they were prevalent and serious issues, but I think he should be remembered for his music and the interesting and incredible innovative things he did on, on his music for more than what went on of areas of his life. Sure. Again, recommending for listeners the biography about him, Jocko. Oh, is a Bill great... Mikowski's book is great because it gives you a great timeline and great anecdotes about Jocko, which I'm privy to a few that are great, fun stories that uh, Hiram share with me and other people. And the biography is great. Pick it up and go out and get some of his music. Yeah, which is incredible. Yeah. For the layman, he's like the Michael Jordan of bass. I mean, he there's no one has achieved what he Yeah, has I done. always tell people uh, who aren't familiar with him, I say, well, he was unique for how he played, what he played, and what he played on. Mm-hmm. You know, he played on a, a fretless Fender jazz bass, which has a very slim neck. That uh, he tore the frets Yeah, out. and he played certain lines and phrases and notes and intervals that other people didn't play, and... He could play quick too, like and mm. clear. Yeah. So that was how I met him, and then I started listening to his music, and then it, it led me to other musicians, mm. listening yeah. wise. Like what? And other bass players, Mark Egan, who also is a client. Other people on fretless. Oh, I would say that one of the most important things that listening to Jaco did for me was listening to Jaco's big band. Yeah. How cool was his, his big band was so much fun and the fretless was there. And, and because I could appreciate what he was doing with his big band, I was able to appreciate the Gil Evans orchestra right? or any big band. So I think Jocko needs to get credit for his big band and where that took listeners like myself. Because of that, I could appreciate not just big bands, but also orchestral and chamber music. It also made me appreciate movie soundtracks and mm. the work of Elmer Bernstein and Lalo Schifflin and all that. There's a commonality through that. And because of listening to Jocko's big band, it opened up my ears. Wow. To much more than just the bass. We'll be right back to the conversation after this brief message from our sponsor. Today's podcast is brought to you by JLC Accounting, bookkeeping, accounting, tax preparation, and advisory. Visit jlc-accounting.com. And by Tap Into TV, original video programming covering topics of interest in New Jersey, New York, and beyond. Visit tapintotv.net. We've talked a lot about your work in the music business and working with a lot of name musicians, which I find endlessly fascinating. (laughs) But... You also collect cars. Yeah, I have a love for cars. You have a love for cars, as do I, so we should. Yeah, yeah. Tell us a little bit about your Shelby. Oh, uh, I'm fortunate to be the owner of an original 66 Hertz Shelby, what's called a GT350H. That's a Ford Mustang, to be clear, right? Yes, a Ford Fastback Shelby Mustang. The Hertz 
is not for the Hertz shifter. It's for Hertz as in rent a car. Right. So explain that. In 1966, Hertz had already a uh, car club with a Corvette, I believe, and Corvette bailed from the program. So Carol Shelby saw an opening there and he got together with Hertz and they made a thousand cars available for rental. They were basically the same as any other street version of a 66 Shelby, except for, I think, the brake booster. Hmm. And uh, they made them available for rental, $18 a day, 18 cents a mile, if I'm correct, at 50 different airports across the country. And the typical Hertz color scheme was white with blue stripes, uh, what they call the Mans stripes, which blue and white is America's racing color when it goes international, by the way, factoid. And they made them available in black with gold stripes, blue with gold, green with gold, red with gold, white with gold. And 800 of the cars were black with gold. Mine's one of the 800. And people would rent them. It was a, a special sports car club. That's what it was. And uh, yeah, yeah. Powerful cars. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> they're almost too much for people. And uh, men and women rented them. And, and sometimes it was too much for just average daily drivers. But there's the legend about people taking them and drag racing them or swapping motors out. Some of that can't be proven, but they did get rented and raced, drag raced. <laughs> uh, after the campaign ended, Ford created the program. They took their best salesman, a guy named Marv Neely, was put in charge to get the cars back to dealerships and be sold for the first time. And he actually came to a lot in Newark, New Jersey, not far from here. There were several hundred Hertz cars and a lot in Newark. When is this? This is at the end of the program. And he got those cars back to dealerships to be sold because they were never sold to the public. And he picked the best car for himself, which to this day is still the most unrestored, one of the most unrestored Shelbys and 66 Shelby. And he owned that for a couple of years. And then a neighbor of a friend of mine bought it. And then my friend had it at one point, uh, Randy Ream out in Lebanon, PA. Hmm. And that car actually is also owned by somebody in Staten Island, New York, a car broker, a guy that rents it to movies. And that car actually showed up in War of the Worlds with Tom Cruise. Oh, he yeah. He drives, that's yeah. a real Shelby. He wanted to buy it, but the guy didn't want to sell it to him. So there's two Hertz cars in Staten Island, New York, mine and this other guy's car. So, uh, yeah, that's my Hertz car. It's a driver. I've had it on Watkins Glen, Lime Rock, and Road America on what they call open track. It's not racing. It's very regulated and safe conditions to go out and just do laps yeah. at speed, at speed. So I've had my car probably doing 110, which is not a lot to vintage race guys, but it was enough for me. Yeah, you that know, feels it's a, fast. It's a yeah. 50-something-year-old car. If you knew how big the control arms of a Mustang <laughs> are not big compared to a Chevy at that time period, being in a car going that quick, you begin to worry. I went out one time with Bob Alberto from Mustang Monthly Magazine, a writer, and uh, used to teach car mechanics in high school and stuff, and we were doing 140 and we got black flagged at Watkins Glen. <laughs> and I was in the passenger seat. You want to talk about being scared? It was incredible, but I, I was scared. 140 in a Mustang. I'm thinking any minute a wheel's going to pop off. Yeah. Something's got to give. And they black flagged us. That was that was pretty incredible. <laughs> no more for you. Yeah. I also used to own a Boss 302 yeah. Mustang, uh, 36,000 original miles. Nice. But right now I got the Shelby, a 67 VW bus and a 58 VW Beetle. Right. You I love another VW Mustang, thing, yeah. but they're way up there now. They are, sure. We passed the 50th anniversary, I think, this past year of Steve McQueen's Bullet, yeah. which has the very famous Fastback Mustang in it. Also, the Boss 
from James Bond, right? It was Diamonds Are Forever, oh, and he yeah. drives the boss uh, yeah, through the yeah. in there. Yeah, it's interesting. Great cars. Of course, I'm a Ford fan. I drive a, a Ford right now, which is exciting. And they make a 700-horsepower GT500 now. It's ridiculous. A friend of mine, I helped restore a 66 Shelby. That was 603 on a dyno. That's the kind of power that a NASCAR is putting out. Yeah. And it's a lot. And my friend later in mid, he goes, yeah, I think I overdid it. And it <laughs> a lot of power, but uh, that's a lot of power. Well, we're at the end of our time, Jack. Uh, we could go on and on. And I want to finish up with a question I always conclude with, which is the phone rings. You pick it up and you have a conversation. You put the phone down. The person on the other end of the line just solved your biggest concern, worry, problem in the world. Who was it and what did they solve? Wow. Oh, uh, that person just gave me another gig. <laughs> I mean, as a freelancer, well, you always who worried was it? about who was it. You know, as a freelancer, you always wanted him. You know, where's the next job? Right. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I'm fortunate. That I don't worry about that too much these days. Yeah, you've been busy. You've had a lot of work output. You're always transporting gear. You know, it's not slowing down. It seems for you. No, you got to keep an open mind. You got to be flexible and always work hard, like it's the first job. Yeah, you, know, you never stop working. I don't know who that call would be from. I, I'm, I'm out of blank. Okay, so I'm going to take another left turn, and we're going we're okay. to finish for the day here. Last bonus question. Okay. Red Bulls, New York Red Bulls soccer team, who we go to those you matches together. You to soccer. Yes, I I'm fall in love with it. I'm guilty of introducing you to uh, Major League Soccer here in the U.S. So you think they're capable of going all the way this coming year? Yeah, why not? Well, that's what we've been saying for, for like yeah. 20 years. My only fear when it comes to soccer is when you call and say, Jack, we're going to the opening game in, like, March. <laughs> Brian took me to a season opener. Yeah. We addressed like we were going to Alaska or something. It was yeah. cold. Now, that's a social media picture to find. There's a picture of you, me, and our uh, one of our editor team leaders yeah. here at the office, Steve, all dressed up like it's Antarctica. Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah, like the uh, McKenzie brothers. Yes. That was <laughs> Literally. Some, that was some damn cold weather. Well, thanks, Jack. Thanks Thank for taking you. time to join me. And, Thank uh, you. It's been fun. We'll catch up on the next episode and cover the Batman story, the <laughs> Steps Ahead story. We'll talk about Lenny White for Great. another that'll episode be, another be fun. time. Signing off. Thanks, Jack. Thanks for listening. This has been a production of East Main Media, hosted by Brian Brodeur. Special thanks to audio engineer J.P. Conk and senior producer Kayla Galka. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave us a good rating. For more information, visit eastmainmedia.com. And thanks for listening.